Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ahoy, sojourners of the virtual skies. This is Benjamin Boyce, and I have been producing interviews for a year and a half now, and I had the complete and utter fortune to interview last night my literary hero or literary champion. I don't know if he'd lay down his life for me in a battle to the death, but if things proceed as I see them proceeding, that might not be necessary. This guy's name is Stephen Bruce, and he's got about 30 novels under his belt. In this interview, we talk about fiction. We talk about his writing style. We talk about his influence on me. We also talk about Marxism. We talk about politics. We talk about things that we probably will both lose a lot of followers for talking about, but maybe not because our followers are lenient enough to take delight when we get off script and wander into the weeds. I do want to add that by a completely random chance event, his favorite novel of mine or my favorite novel of his, Agur, if you can see this, it was written in the mid 90s and it just came out in audiobook form. And I highly recommend if you read anything by Bruce, it is this book. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. He... I can't fanboy hard enough and I probably shouldn't anyways. So let's just get right to it. Here's Stephen Bruce. Hey. I love living in the future. Well, wait, it's the future already? I'm not prepared. How's your evening going? Ah, it's my morning. Okay, how's your morning? uh, uh, It's slowly waking up. This is bound to be interesting. Okay, we're just going to watch the wheels begin to crank. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you drinking clava? I am, in fact, drinking coffee because I have yet to find a decent uh, a clava recipe that works. I'm told there is one. Huh. Of, the, of the various ones people have come up with, there's one I'm assured actually does it, but I haven't. And, and, and some guys sent me all the things, <laughs> and I just haven't gotten around to, to putting it together yet. Okay. Um, which makes it's... me feel really bad because, you know, I, he obviously put a lot of work into it. But... um. The re- most of the recipes I've tried um, have the opposite effect. Uh, the so, opposite of being good? Of, In particular, it's supposed to have the full flavor of coffee without the bitterness. Hmm. Okay. And instead, it intensifies the bitterness. Oh, interesting. I think because of the wood chips. Okay. Well, what caused you to place kava, clava in your your fantasy world then because i wanted something that tastes like coffee smells oh, okay it's my world i wanted a good <laughs> a good coffee like drink and no mosquitoes so so the, that was the, the, the foundation of the world right there someplace i want to live <laughs> good coffee no mosquitoes okay i yeah you know what i looking back on my memory of your books i i don't think i've interacted with one mosquito see no mosquitoes. Huh. That's weird. But I guess like, so all the, all the evil in the world has to be offloaded onto humanoids then, I guess. Pretty much. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Yeah. 
hate mosquitoes. Wait, wait but um, that's is that from your Minnesota upbringing? Is that what yeah. gives yeah, you the, this? It's the state bird. <laughs> state swarm, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Although, <laughs> frankly, I uh, they don't bother me so much anymore because uh, they hate nicotine and and. Okay. I, I I'm down to very little uh, blood in my nicotine system okay. now. Wow. Okay. How do you manage that? Is there like a like a clava concoction of nicotine like that just completely no, fills you up? I smoke a lot. Okay. Um. You're not e-cigs. Uh. Sometimes. Sometimes okay. e-cigs. When okay. I'm trapped somewhere I can't use tobacco. Um. Huh. Then I I will sometimes use an e-cig. You know what? I don't want to fanboy on you because I promised myself not to do that. But I was I was sitting on my deck yesterday. I was smoking a cigarette. I'm like, I wonder if Stephen Brest would approve of me smoking cigarettes or not. That, that was an open question. So now I guess you have no choice but to approve. Pretty much. It's Bruce, by the way. Bruce. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, no I, at least I uh, pronounce clava correctly. Right. Well, <laughs> in terms of, of made up of, of, of the words in my books... Um, Boost. My philosophy is if I'm going to make up funny words, I don't get to complain about how people say them. Yeah, but but your last name's not a made-up word. Right, right. So Well, yeah. except insofar as all words are made-up words, I guess. <laughs> you know, it helped that there was an umlaut there, but apparently that got dropped somewhere along the line. Well, it's a, it's a how should I say this? The, the name is originally Germanic, hmm. mean, means breast or chest. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and the German pronunciation is Brust. The okay. American pronunciation is Brust. And the Hungarian pronunciation is Brust, where okay. it is spelled B-R-U-S-Z-T. Mm. I think in order to get that pronunciation, that would be the... But the U defaults in Hungarian. The U is a long U. Okay. And yeah. if you, it starts changing as you put various marks around it yeah. uh umlaut long umlaut diacritical all the fun little things they do to entertain us and did that uh, z get dropped when your family migrated to the americas i have the impression it got dropped before that sometime hmm. that while they were in hungary but i'm not hmm. i'm not 100 percent sure so what percentage of your writing, roughly speaking, do you think uh, derives from your ancestral heritage? I mean, the Broke Down Palace, I assume, is pretty deeply steeped in it because it has that feeling. Oh, yeah. Of a... Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know that I could give it in terms of a percentage. It's. Um... Huh. But is it there? It's is, sort is of. It oh, something... it goes through everything. It goes yeah. through everything because when in doubt. And I need I need something. That's what I grab for, because in my um, in my formative teenage years, I read a lot of Hungarian folklore and Hungarian this. It's the the thing when you're a super insecure kid. Hmm. Not that any of us would know about that. (laughs) Doing a whole series on that. actually. (laughs) Uh, One of the things I needed was a hook to hang my pride on. Yeah. You do okay. when you're a kid. You say, I'm special because X. Yes. And that's what I grabbed onto. Interesting. 
I've been I've been doing a lot of investigation into the obsession with identity, especially in the teen and, and early twenties, and it seems like you grabbed onto your tradition. I kind of grabbed onto my tradition too. A lot of kids are are grabbing onto newer things to pin their identity on, but it seems like just a yeah something that we have to do. And I think that's perfectly reasonable and completely healthy until it becomes political, and then you're in deep shit. Political or pathological, or is there a difference? Oh, nice. <laughs> ah, now you got me going. Now I may need more coffee to answer that. Well, I have a beer well, here. Well, I, 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 I guess either. Okay, and yeah. They probably aren't the same. Yeah, um, but why would you say that, that once an identity that I guess could be thought of as a scaffold for the self that the self is using while it builds itself... What is it about being politicized that gets somebody in trouble, do you think? Um, Because I think there are greater, more important, more significant and more fundamental issues Hmm. around which to organize than the cosmetic ones. Okay. Uh, And how do we bridge that gap? I guess maybe getting biographical, looking back at your life, how did you bridge the gap from like the cosmetic I'm dressing up as a Hungarian, even just intellectually into like uh, becoming more fuller and and, uh, less surface oriented. Okay. This is going to be tricky. Ready? Yeah. I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Does that involve kids? Was there a special recipe? Uh, No, it's, um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a completed process because it never is. Yeah, no, but, yeah. Uh, but, but eventually you outgrow that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you, you suddenly there's there's more to who you are. Hmm. <laughs> the real answer is acquired skills. Any anytime <laughs> any anytime you're at a you're. Boy. I see this person doing that thing. I sure wish I could do that thing because that's cool. Oh, after all this work, now I can do that thing. Yeah. Then that takes the place of of hmm. of of uh, infantry. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Huh. Or it ought to. We hope it does. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it solves some things, but probably just leads you to other. Uh, flaws or, or projects to work on in your it life. It certainly leads you to other projects, but I think it's overall a good thing. I mean, the real cure for skill, for lack of self-confidence is learning skills. Yeah. To skills sink yourself that, into something. That sink you yourself in. Yeah. And say, hey, I learned to do that. And once you go, wow, I didn't know how to do that. Now I can hmm. to this level of competence that at one time I thought was difficult or impossible, then <laughs> say, well, I can do that with other things, can't I? I if I if if I learned how to play the guitar to some level of, of competence, why can't I learn to write? It's just yeah, a matter, exactly. you know, and so on. Yeah. Once you look at the world as a series of masteries, then uh, it's mm-hmm. less overwhelming. Even if it's impossible, it still remains as impossible. Right. And and it it gives you um, it gives you something to answer back huh. on those nights when, as my friend Elise once put it, you're listening to the walls do your autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> and There's it, so many ways to read that. Yeah, and it's not. 
it, it isn't going to completely solve everything, but at least it gives you something to say, yeah. okay, you're right. I did all those terrible things and I am horrible because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. But at least I can do this. Yeah. I was speaking with uh, Corinna, who I interviewed before. She's a trans woman in the East Coast, and she drove you to an event uh, at some point in your life. I don't know when this was. Uh-huh. And she wanted me to ask you, what do you think the role of narrative is in in young people's development? And just to kind of bring this back around to like, what is the what is the value of the story? Oh, no, there's a nice, narrow, precise, easy question. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how you would respond to that one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to respond to that by saying, give me a second, I'm going to get more coffee. Okay. All right. That is such a huge question. Um, let me take some pieces of it. Okay. It certainly can be useful on an individual level to tell yourself a story at times when things are difficult, uh, growth is needed, uh, or just getting past pain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be really useful to, to, to build it on narrative. This is who I am. This is, this is the story of my life. I mean, this is what's going on. Um, it can also be unhealthy. It can be pathological. Mm-hmm. Uh, the postmodernists certainly believe that narrative takes the place of truth. Whereas I think that is only true if we let it, and it's a very bad hmm. idea. Okay. Um, hmm. So does does do you think that that story should have a relationship to truth and not a replacement of truth? Then is there like a proper relationship between a narrative and truth? Does truth fill up the narrative, or does truth like uh, become the the eventual like uh, hope that a narrative becomes, or? Speaking metaphorically, of course. Yeah, and the answer is that you're, I mean, as you're creating narrative, or to be precise, as you're writing stories, you are certainly hoping to discover what is true yeah. and lay it before the reader. That That's sort of, that's one of your goals. That is, in some sense, your highest goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if we never get there, we try. Huh. Um, that's... And that that has certain very uh, abstract yeah. results, but also some very concrete ones. That's what's going on when you get to that writing point where your character says, no, I won't do that. Hmm. What's happening there is the truth of the story okay. is being infringed. And your story is letting you know that somewhere along the line, huh. you You're screwed mistaken. up. Or, or the path you've laid out for yourself is not going to work. It violates the truth of the story. Yeah. Um, the, the search for truth, I'm not saying we can ever know truth with a capital yeah. T. I'm saying the search for it yeah. is important. And, and it is real. I mean, there is, you know, the human race has gotten to where we have been by getting closer and closer to understanding the world around us. Yeah. And, and art is in a way, it's a part of that process. We capture it in images and in artifacts. Yeah. And, and symbolically and emotionally. Yeah. Okay. 
but it's still no, this is something real. And that moment you get in the best work, we just lost Gene Wolfe. Um, so it's a good time to mention he would do that. Uh, those moments of, wow, it really is like that. That's going on around me. And I had not noticed. Yeah. And so you mentioned the postmodernist uh, view that the truth is just made up narrative or, or assemblage of narrative yeah. and it's a fantasy, yeah. but your, your wheelhouse in writing is called fantasy. Right. So postmodernists want to strip truth away, but even fantasy by claiming that it's not truth is not letting go of the pursuit of truth. What's the relationship between fantasy and truth? Is it another way of getting to that? Is it's it enough, uh, it's, lifting it's up enough. certain restrictions to get into other things? Exactly. You've answered your own question. That's exactly what it is. Uh, hmm. For example, certain kinds of fantasy do it. Let's take secondary world fantasy. We all we know what we mean by that, right? Could you define that, please? Um, creating another world. This isn't taking okay. place on Earth. This is taking place in a made-up land, in Middle Earth or yeah. uh, Westeros, or you know, you name Dragera, it, yeah. or Dragera. Yeah. And one of the things you can do with that is examine your own world in a way that you cannot from within it. Hmm. Um, I can I walk around in my um, in my house, but I can't really see my house because I'm inside it. I have to go yeah. across the street. Yeah. Okay. Oh, secondary world fantasy, for example, allows you to do that. Um, what we do with magic, it can be any number of things. In one, some of which I have been consciously doing at times in the Vlad novels. Yeah is magic would be a stand-in for engineering. Yeah. In other words, it allows me to address how is it we use this accumulated scientific and engineering knowledge, particularly those of us who don't know how it works. We just get into our car and drive. We just hook up our computer and hit yeah. Skype. Yeah, yeah. And, and so how it is that we... Uh, that we interact with that, I can play with that by calling it magic. Okay. But you don't do the same thing with personalities or archetypes. Mentioning your Vlad novels, every novel in this series is named after a certain house in your uh, in the realm that you've created. And right. each house has certain characteristics. And I could think of them now, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, as kind of archetypes or they're, they're assemblages of, of a persona kind of thing. So it's not like the persona is not standing in for magic. There's no swapping out of that persona or is there? Are you investigating a different character by, by using it as a theme? That, that's cool. I'd never thought of it that way. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing on that is providing myself hooks and inspirations. Okay. Yeah. Um, my entire writing career is built on cheating yeah, I, I know. I love I, that about you. I, I, so I, cheat, I cheat happily and merrily and am in favor of it. And one of the ways I will cheat is, okay, if I've got a, – a lot of it is, okay, what happens next? Or what's the next scene? Or what's the next word? And hmm. there's a thousand different ways um, – To orient to, yourself. 
Yeah, and one of and and build, building it based on a, on a house is one of those, and one of for me the most useful. I can just go well. Let's see. I'm writing about um, yeah. House okay. of the Zer. So yeah. if I don't know what happens, he's going to have to do something Zer-like. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, so but, are, are you saying that you're not really conscious of like the investigation that that causes you to do? Because that's what you end up oh, focusing oh, no. your on. Do, it, do you get more understanding of what these characters are, these these houses? Absolutely. Yeah, I do that. And that's, and that's part of the fun for me. But that's also part of the same cheat. Because not just, okay, he's got to do something Zer-like, but also, again, stuck, not sure what happens next. I can go, well, what does it mean to be mm. this kind of person? Yeah. And how can I turn that into dialogue and action huh. and, and in order to investigate it? And, you know, you try like hell to keep yourself honest because yeah. when you don't, at least to me, it really shows. Hmm. It, it shows in a flawed work, in in a plot word that goes. Wait, why did he do that? Are you able to see that, or does it take years for you to see that? See those flaws, see those mistakes, or are you unable to finish something unless you you confront that mistake? And, and there are a problem? number of of mistakes and problems and errors that I don't see for years. Yeah. That one, I seem to have a pretty good handle on just hmm. from feel. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. If it, if it feels wrong as I'm doing it, I have learned to pay attention to that. Okay. Huh. Okay. And, so some things can be, can be resolved by feeling, but something like a technical detail or a plot arc or a place where I use like too many words or Oh. Words of all, a place where I used the almost right word instead of the right word. Ouch. And and I come back to that 20 years later and go, why did they let me get away with that? <laughs> also, someone please shoot me. Oh, um, no. <laughs> the, the, I, I would say, I don't know if this is true of every writer. Maybe it is. But at least for me, 95% of my... Um, Hmm. errors of the things I regret, the things I didn't get quite right are nothing more than laziness, huh. nothing more than pure. Damn it. I needed to look at that more closely. I needed okay. to, to put more time into that. And, okay. And I try very hard not to do that. And yet I still, when reading something from 20 years ago, go, yeah. eh, eh. Can, can I ask you a specific question? Your favorite novel, my favorite novel of yours, yeah, I said that right, is, is Agyar, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Oh, thank you very much. I am really, that's one of the few that I just look at and go, yeah, God damn it, I nailed that one. Could you, would you mind talking about where you were when you wrote that and what that was like to write? Because it uh, just seems like a, a blessed novel. It's just perfect. That's how it seems to me, too, which is a horrible <laughs> thing to say about my own work. But I just, that one was magical. It was amazing. I just uh, wrote up on my blog the story of its first oh. inspiration. Um, I can tell it again if you'd like. I got no problem telling this story. It's okay, about Gene, I would love to hear it. It's about Gene Wolfe, and that's what caused me to rewrite it. Uh, I got on this Gene Wolfe kick as does everyone who discovers him pretty much um, and and is willing to read on his terms. 
which okay. I had to learn to do. Hmm. Um, and as when I was re and I'm so I'm going through all his works and I got to peace. And I read peace and I put it down and went, well, that's interesting. Um, a guy wanders around his house. That's not what's going on here. I'm missing something. So I called Neil Gaiman, which is what you do when you can't understand Gene Wolfe. <laughs> and this was, of course, years ago when you could just, you know, call Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Um, and I said, Neil, help me. What's going on? And he goes, oh, Roy, okay. You know that tree that falls over on page one? Well, <laughs> halfway through the book, he plants it. He's a ghost. Okay. Uh, oh. And, you know, and he talks about, you know, he commits various murders during the book and never quite quite tells you he does. He gives you the information to put it together. Yeah. And, and and stuff. So I reread it, and I was like, "Wow!" And sometime later, and I was uh, having a discussion with my brother-in-law about Dickens and some of the way he got some of the effects, uh, and and the the symbolism. What do you mean by effects? Like within the reader or in the within the work? Some of the, some okay. of the way he he did things, and it popped into my head. It would okay. be really cool if I were to write a vampire book to have at some point when we meet the person who will take down the hero, there are shadows of wooden stakes hmm. on the ceiling. Okay. Which, by the way, happens the first time he meets Susan. Okay. I don't call them that, but, you know. And then okay. I immediately went, peace. Wow, I could do a vampire novel and never tell people it yeah. was a vampire novel. Just be this evil guy wandering around doing evil things. So... Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was the coolest <laughs> idea ever. I ran off. Says I said, to my brother-in-law, I got to go now, and dashed up to my um, to my study and just pounded out the first chapter. Yeah. And I'm I'm you know thinking, do I tell people I'm showing it to this is going to be a vampire novel, or do I just let see it? You know. And I showed it to my writers group, and they said, oh, you're writing a vampire novel. Okay. Yeah. And I showed it to my editor, and she said, oh, you're writing a vampire novel. And I showed it to my agent and said, oh, you're writing a vampire novel. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing a fucking vampire novel. Shut up. <laughs> this is, and uh, this is how I learned I am not Gene Wolfe. I did uh, once get to tell that story on a panel when Gene was in the audience, and he laughed a great deal. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You, but anyway, you... it, it was an amazing transcendental experience. Um, hmm. in, inspiration, which we can define as the creative unity of the conscious and the unconscious, I would agree with that. is something that, in my experience, happens in short bursts, occasionally longer ones. The work is not inherently either better or worse. Okay. It's simply more fun. Yeah. In of inspiration it yeah. flows and it's a delight and it's a joy that entire book was one six week period of yeah. inspiration i don't remember anything yeah. except sitting at the computer reading it as it came off my fingers yeah yeah it okay. was so cool yeah <laughs> of course i had a fair bit of revision and and you know yeah. um same as anything else but wow that was a fun book it just came out on audio by the way Oh, did it? I was wondering yeah. about that. Who uh, reads I, it? I do. 
Oh, except, really? Except um, the uh, uh, my friend Kaylin Rashke reads the prologue and the epilogue, and then I okay. do the rest. Oh, excellent. Perfect. Wonderful. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. What season was it when you wrote it? What part of the year were those six weeks? If you... Wow, that's a wonderful question. And I don't remember. I'd have to figure it out. What, <laughs> what made you ask that? I just, I had, interesting question. I just had a feeling of, I, I'm rereading it right now. I've, I've read it several times. Um, I can't even recall how many times I've read it. But like this time going through it, I just had a, a feeling of your connection to the environment. And I just wondered, because ah. it, it's set in the winter, but there was something autumnal about autumnal okay. about autumnal. it. Yeah, that stuff. Okay, the the I, I I did a lot of fun things just that that I enjoyed and and no one would pick up on just because I loved them. One of the things is okay, the powers and limitations. My phone has decided it wants to talk to me. Oh yeah, um, Siri does that. Yeah, the um, the powers and limitations. The powers and limitations of the vampire are straight out of Dracula which remains my favorite vampire novel. Okay. Um, the timeline of the book is exactly the corresponding timeline. It's the rest of the year from, from Dracula. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Dracula yeah. takes place from, uh, I think May around a September if memory serves. And this is the rest of the year. Okay. This is the, the God of the, the wanting year then to Dracula's yeah. waxing. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, you know, there were things like I kept really close track of what the moon, where the phase of the moon was. And Jack gets different and changes and what he writes, what he writes about and how much he wants to write changes with the huh. wax waning moon. So stuff like that and, and little yeah. things that nobody is going to specifically notice, but they made the work more real to me. Yeah, and that translated a little bit. Yeah, so many tricks that the writer needs to do are just to get the writer to do what he needs the reader to do, which is to exactly. read the book. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of, you know, um, I have a, a friend, Jim McDonald, who gave this, uh, James D. McDonald, gave a wonderful lecture on writing. And one of the examples he used was he built this really elaborate, beautiful dollhouse. Hmm. And he talks about constructing it, planning it, building it. One of the things is there is a completely enclosed room. And Jim said, there's a guy in there that I put who's got a saw and he's working at a workshop building this house. Okay. And you can't see him. Yeah. But I know he's there. And the fact that I know he's there informs how I built the house. Yeah. And that's that's a perfect example. I I don't want to cast shade on J.J. Abrams because he might one day end up producing an HBO series based on your novels. But he's got a he's got a story about like this magic box or this present that he has that he refuses to open. And a lot of his movies have that box in it where you, there's that lacune and I'm probably mispronouncing it. And I wanted to ask you about this. There's always a gap in your novels. There's always a gap in in J.J. Abrams, like the movies that he has people write for him and that he produces. But there's something different about the gap 
that that you provide, there's something in the gap. I always know that there's something in the gap, whereas I'm never sure if there's actually any gap in there. Do you do you know what I'm saying? Like I, there's that mystery element to J.J. Abrams' work, but like you're always like there's not. I'm always kind of disappointed I, where I can feel there's something in here. I, I think I I think I do know what you mean, and it's it's that's one of the interesting things when you've been in this for as long as I have, because I will come up with a thing, uh, a throwaway, and if you yeah. will, a box, and I'll know exactly what's in that box and why it's there. And 30 years later, I will have forgotten, but I still have the box. <laughs> All I know is that at one time, I knew what why that was like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's, that goes back to something that you brought up about um, Gene Wolfe. And you said that um, you said something along the lines of reading on his terms. Like you have to the reader has to read on his terms. Yeah. And. And one of the problems that I struggled with in my writing and that I've seen other young writers uh, struggle with is that uh, there's a difference between uh, doing it the right way and doing it the wrong way. And doing it the wrong way would be to expect the reader to bow to your will in a weird way. Like you are able to please the reader and give them enough to get in the story, even though you withhold so much. Thank you. You're really good at withholding. That, that's that's. That's kind of the goal. I mean, that yeah, that that's what I shoot for. And and how do you how do you walk that line? How do you give them enough and and respect their attention, but still demand that they play your game? That's that's um, that may be the key question to the whole thing. It's, yeah, maybe that's. Uh, and I, I've been working on. I, I was teaching for a while, and the the centerpiece of my of my lecture. Um, was about exactly that. And the way you do that, I mean, I can state it in a single sentence how you do it, but that just asks the more, you know, difficult yeah. question. You do it by getting into the reader's head. Okay. By going, if I'm the reader, here's where I'm at right now. Hmm. Um, that gives you, now the trick is how to do that, and that's where it gets complicated. Yeah. But if you can do that, if you can be where the reader is, that's where cliches, instead of being obnoxious and annoying, suddenly become your friend. Yeah. Because you can start with the cliche and you know where the reader's head is and then you twist it. Yeah. And yeah. you say, okay, this is a sophisticated reader. He's seen all these movies. He's seen all these – read all these books. There's all this stuff going on. The reader knows when X, Y happens, we're setting up for Z. Yeah. So I can do something different Z or I can, too. yeah, or I can just go ahead and do that depending on how it feels at the, you know, what, what I think, how it, I think it should work. But the control of the reader head of, of yeah. directing where the reader is thinking requires knowing, knowing Being what, what the re saying, if I were reading this book, at this moment, here is where I would be. Here is what I would be expecting. Okay. This is what I would be feeling. Yeah. And if you can be aware of that, mm -hmm. it yeah. it gives you a tremendous power, which we use for good or evil, and the choice is yours. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> unless you're a critic, then you can do whatever you want with the right. corpse that you're exhuming. <laughs> <laughs> There's... um. 
I'm sorry, you're blowing my mind right now. So I had all these different questions, but <laughs> I'm just thinking in so many different... Um... You're very good at this. Uh, you're getting stuff out of me that has not generally been gotten out of me. Nice job. <laughs> well, you know, because, you know, it, it's just like, you know, I don't have any sense of the reader, but I do have a, a sense of where my interviewee is. That I, yeah, I don't, okay. I okay. can't... When I'm alone with the page, I don't understand that. But when I'm talking to somebody... That's that when makes, it finally clicks that makes to me. Sense. That means uh, means you're doing what you should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, oh yeah, I remember the question. So, your first book was it a Vlad novel? Yes. Okay, it, and it was uh, Jarhead or however you pronounce that. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, if I recall correctly, your wife at the time told you just to write a book or, or just like gave you permission to take some time off to write a book. Yeah. I remember I'd, I'd gotten laid off from a programming job and, oh, from a programming and, job. And she said, okay, well let's collect unemployment for six months, write a book. Okay. And yeah. I said, okay. Yeah. How the fuck did you pull that off? Like how understand. old were you? I don't understand well, how you let, did that. Let me see. I would have been, uh, I would have been 25, 24, wow. 25. And how did you how did you know how to do that? I just I don't understand how you did that because I, I I'm I'm 42. I still can't do what you did when you were 25. Well, I can't do what you do. Uh, I, I'd been writing. I mean, okay. writing was, was like an itch to me that I um, would come up approximately twice a year and would last two weeks where I've got to write. I have to get story down and then it would go away. <laughs> and and I'd feel better, huh. and and it just gradually got okay. to be more often and for longer duration. Until now, it's okay. kind of constant. Yeah, it's just, Is it... you know, I want to get those words down because yeah, it doesn't feel right if I don't. Yeah, okay, I understand that feeling, and <laughs> I don't want to ask about writer's block, but it seems like you don't have that, or it's something else. It's conf- I, it's I haven't yet, at least. I really? Yet. I, okay. I am not, you know, I'm not going to say it would never happen. I mean, I've gotten stuck, certainly. Yeah, okay. That's but different as, when you get stuck. Yeah, as, as I understand it, writer's block is a different thing than than just not knowing what happens next. And, yeah. Um, huh. And so far, I have managed to avoid it. So you, earlier on in our conversation, you said that a story will tell you when you're off and, and you'll feel the mistake happening and you'll you'll need to correct it. Certain you're writing, kinds of yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain, certain kinds. You, you've been writing this Vlad stuff for what thirty? I don't know the exact date, but it was eighty something, right? Uh, I wrote it in nineteen eighty, sold it in eighty one, came out oh, in eighty three. Eighty. So this is almost forty years old. This, yeah. this, this yeah. series that you've been doing. So, so yep. working on these individual novels is one thing. Another thing, I don't know if you're free to talk about this. How does that translate into I'm stuck with the world? It's one thing to be stuck with the story, but do you ever get stuck with the world or did you it never it never feels like I'm stuck with it. It feels like it's got like it keeps opening up in front of me. Okay. Like, oh, here's a piece I haven't examined. This would be fun. I mean, my 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 uh. system for you know, people ask why I write the books out of order and what my plan is and there isn't one. <laughs> the plan is nothing more than 
oh, I know what would be a fun story. I'm going to tell okay. this one. Now, oh. I'm now getting toward the end, and therefore yeah. now for the first time, it's – and not with the one I'm on now, but I, but after this one, I'm working on Psalmoth. After this, I'll have three to go, and okay. that may start to feel a bit restrictive at that point. Okay. Like, okay, I've got to write one of these, and I don't know how I'll deal with that oh. I won't until I get there. So uh, you so haven't been far, working on compulsion. You've been working on inspiration. I wouldn't even call it necessarily inspiration. Well, okay, yeah, maybe no. that's pretty close, something like that. But but just um, exploration. Yeah, you're not it's doing like, things because you have to. Right, and 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 of course, thematically, they tend they often carry over into each other. Yeah. Now the themes are not very obvious, and I think any reader can cheerfully ignore them. Yeah. They're there yeah. to keep me going. Mm-hmm. Not for the reader, but but there are certain things as part of that thing of, of how do I figure out what happens next? How do I keep going? In addition to the houses, there's also usually a theme of some kind I'm looking at, a question yeah. I'm trying to answer or explore. Yeah. And sometimes okay. this will carry forward from one book to the next. Yeah, the the thing that... that of of your work that has influenced me so much is the number of different tricks you use and you call them cheats, but they're, they're just layers. Like you'll have a, a, a house, then you'll have like a question, like you're saying, then you'll have like some sort of emotional arc. You'll have the actual plot, but then there's always like a trick that you'll use with how you break up the chapters or like that. You're, you're oh, that's, and stuff. But, but that's fun. Isn't that yeah. fun? It's all those different things. Yeah, it's that, you know, you you write the book you wish someone else had written because it's (laughs) what you want to read, right? I mean, that's what I hope we're doing. Okay, Um, this, yeah. Hang on, I got to get more coffee. Yeah. Oh, and I had two questions then. Okay. Okay. All right, sorry about that. I had to, uh, I'm I'm starting to wake up. I'm starting to wake up now. Did I say anything stupid? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> did i, <laughs> I don't you know, think the, be- so. the best part about speaking with the writer is you you correct me in real time so i don't have to deal with all the comments correcting me afterwards. <laughs> you know there was somebody this is years and years ago and i didn't do it and i'm glad i didn't do it but i so wanted to call in with some radio web I think it was a webcast. I don't remember, but it was so long ago talking about my work and various mm-hmm. others. And it was really nice, and they were very kind, except they took me to task for um, ripping off Zelazny's uh, Fracker. Did you read the second Amber books? Second Amber uh, series? I read the first one. I can't remember if I read uh, the second. Uh, starts with uh, Trumps of Doom. and And in it, our main character has this uh, sort of semi-living thing that he keeps around his wrist. Yeah. And they accuse me of ripping that off. And I wanted to go, dude, look at the copyright dates. Oh. That's the only time I've ever had a real urge to to call <laughs> up, a, 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 you know, somebody to me and say, hey, no, what? Don't, that's not right. And the rest of the time you go, okay, if you hated it, you hated it, you know. Well, I, I guess like, wrong. You liked it. <laughs> okay. Well, did you want to correct them because they were factually wrong, or because you realized at that moment that you were lower in the peck- pecking order from Zelazny? Oh, I've always been lower. I mean, he's my hero. Okay. Okay. He is yeah. my hero. Yeah, it's because it was a combination of factually correct and 
being accused of the sort, I stole a lot from Zelazny, but not uh, that kind of thing. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, you could you could pretty much summarize the Vlad books as um, taking the aesthetic of a Zelazny novel yeah. in the world of a Fritz Leiber novel with the tropes of a Moorcock novel and the voice of a Raymond Chandler novel. Yeah. Yeah. And you mash those together. There's, there's my work. There's not, you know, that's it. Yeah, but but there's a there's a proper way to steal. Like there's that that Picasso or Abraham Lincoln quote about great artists. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thieving yeah. in the light. But there's a proper way to steal. Yes. Yes. That that at once uplifts your your uh, the person that taught you what to do, and and also maintains your self respect. Yeah, I, I'd go along with that. And and how do you know what to do? I guess it, it's just another feeling thing. You just it's it's, a, a, it's an honor thing. It's right? it's another it's another feeling thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I love I love taking things I'm geeked on and winking at them, which is another thing than stealing. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Burn Notice, mm-hmm. but one one of the Vlad books where I you know um, mm. where I just copped the opening of burn notice and just stuck huh. it into my prologue <laughs> as, as close to word for word as I could. Um, huh. and, and, and sometimes smaller things, you know, a wink at Monty Python and, you know, yeah. either you catch it or you don't. And if you do, he, he, and let's move on. Yeah. But it, it it's not central. Like, like in some of your earlier right. novels, you have this, uh, this odd acronym after your name, uh, Joyce fellowship. PJF. Pre-Joycean Fellowship. So you're like the most Joycean, anti-Joycean out there because you're always referencing, but it's not core to the novel. Is that fair to say? That you're doing the same things that he does, but you're doing something else while you're doing that. That's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, the the theory, the philosophy behind the Pre-Joycean Fellowship is obviously loosely based on the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Oh, okay. And the Pre-Raphaelites did not think there was anything wrong with Raphael. They loved Raphael. They just thought that his influence had gone yeah. in the wrong direction. Okay. And it and it's the same thing with the way we felt about Joyce. Nothing wrong with Joyce. Yeah. It's <clears throat> people who picked up the wrong things from him, if you will. Uh, the best summary hmm. of the Joycean Fellowship came from Tappan King. Um. Uh, used to edit the Twilight Zone magazine, uh, has okay. done pretty much everything in publishing. <laughs> and his summary was, um, we exist to make fun of the excesses of modern literature while simultaneously mining it for everything of value. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and to me, that's perfect. That's that's the goal. Yes. Yeah. In order to be against something in a fruitful manner, you take everything that it possibly could give rise to and push it to the extreme while just shitting pardon me all over everything that was wrong with it uh, yeah the um one uh, dialectically one would say you negate it yeah but but there's a proper way to negate just like there's well, a proper I mean, way that, to steal. that's what i mean is in the dialect negating it in the dialectical sense not by ignoring it but by assimilating it okay and then going beyond yeah yeah well okay so we're kind of in political territory well maybe maybe we are maybe we're not but i want to take it there and i had a question to you 
from something you said earlier about knowing where the reader is while you're writing and like right. uh, positioning a reader. Maybe the reader's just you, but you have that that superposition of the reader, the the consumer, the person who's going along, who's not doing the work but is is reassembling the work into uh, a field of imaginative reality or whatever. That's There's a this nice thing way to put it really. I like that. Well, anyway. Yeah. Thank you. Um but there there are these things called sensitivity readers now in the publishing industry. I don't know if you know about them or yeah, not. I do. But, but they're now going through and they're they're another superposition that it seems could go in a totally wrong way. I I, I disagree with them on a lot of levels, but insofar as they disrupt the creative process, they they could actually block one off from actually forwarding a discussion that's really important. What do you think about the sensitivity reader? Is it that big of a deal or is it setting a precedent that we need to be really wary of? You are asking me to comment on something about which I might get limitless yeah. flack. Okay. So yeah. let me charge. Uh, let me, let me, <laughs> di- let me dive in. Uh, both. Um, I think we do need to be wary of it for exactly the reason you say, but I also think it can be useful. I mean, I did that. I have a, okay. I have a buddy uh, in Good Guys uh, has a an African-American protagonist. And mm-hmm. I had a friend that said, you know something? I might be missing some crap here. Let me send, ship it over to him and okay. get his comments. And okay. it wasn't a big thing of, I've got a sensitivity reader. Yeah. But I was asking a buddy who was more knowledgeable than me on this area yeah to look it over and see what he thought and he gave me some really interesting uh very useful suggestions and that i was you know able to put in a word here and a word there and just sort of you know tweak yeah um and i found it very useful i on the other hand i'm not turning it into a major thing Mm -hmm. i am a little leery of yeah well, um, I, I can see in, in the opening to Aguirre, or like the acknowledgments, you, you list uh, somebody who helped you with medical terminology. And it seems like if there's a, a cultural resource that you can incorporate authentically, if that's what the story demands, then I, I can see the use for it and, and all that respect exactly. for these culture. Exactly. Um, but when it becomes a policing action and how do we walk that line between respect and being policed. I think what you're talking about is a very real thing. And my answer is I'm not going to, I'm simply going to write the next book I'm Mm. going to write. And I really want to keep the hell out of how other people approach their work. Hmm. Um, If, if, uh, if there are people who are, who are uncomfortable writing something without going through a certain process. Yeah. Uh, I get to sit there in the back of my head and go, is that hurting your work? I don't know. Hmm. But I can't really know that either. And it's kind of not my place. Yeah. For me, I'm just going to keep writing the next book. I feel like writing. And when I reach one of those things with, as you say, a cultural thing or medical terminology where I go, I need some help with this. I'm going to get the help. Yeah. 
did that it, answer your question or did I well, dodge it neatly? <laughs> you no, know, you probably, I probably just shouldn't go down this, but the, the, the other precedent isn't just what the publishers are doing, but with regards to some happenings within the young adult sphere, there's like this mob mentality that, that wants to shape the, the writing craft in its own image and, and make sure that everybody goes through a process of being vetted by the mob. And I'm not necessarily, we don't, we can, maybe we can abstract the political aspect, the, the particular political aspect, but that precedent of a mob telling a writer or an artist what to do and the artist going around and apologizing and then shifting. The, it's, ex- uh, it's extremely dangerous. Uh, you're right. Um, I don't believe it has so far had much effect on me, which limits how much right I have to object to it. And also, I don't keep up with the field as well as I should to have a really good opinion about that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, 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 um, but, but if that's affecting future writers, people who would take up your mantle, let me put it to you this way. Everyone who reads a book has a right to critique that book. The author, if the author should happen to come across that work of criticism, Mm -hmm. the writer then has the right to take as little or as much of that to heart Mm -hmm. as seems appropriate. Where I draw the line is because the subject matter of what of your criticism is X, Y, Z, that gives you extra yeah. Th- that means you the writer have to listen to me yeah and no i won't go there okay. i will decide what i will listen to and what i will pay attention to yeah okay um okay so let's get away from from current politics and let's get into marxism how is um, that not current politics because <laughs> uh, Every once in a while, you say that you're a Marxist. At least that's what I've seen. Um, But maybe, maybe, and this is maybe this is a misreading of Marxism. Um, And allow me a little bit of wiggle room, and please correct me if if I go astray. But if if Marxism, in a certain respect, wants to uh, redistribute resources. depending on, you know, needs, right? And redistributing resources based on needs. Um, does that not translate or has it not already always translated into the redistribution of, of, of psychic needs? Like, like of, of who gets to say what and, and the whole sensor beyond the capital level, beyond the materialistic level of shuffling around resources. There's also the, the, the psychic capital that is always uh, shuffled around of what you can say, what you can't say, and, and who's the most oppressed group and who we need to be careful around and, and who needs extra respect. I think, all, I, I think looking at that, concentrating on who who is the most oppressed group or who gets this and i think it's incredibly unhealthy it has certainly nothing to do with marxism okay um <clears throat> the marxism is not is a theory of knowledge it's hmm. a a method for understanding the world okay um based on uh social classes that okay. is relate relation to production and distribution and how society works, 
and making you know a certain amount of understanding of where it's headed hmm. um to you know hmm it seems like it goes from from distribution of production to redistribution uh, do, do you do you do you kind of see what I'm trying to to say? Like it always has a cultural I, impact. I where, almost I almost where, see what you what you're trying to say, but to me, a cultural impact. I mean, if we might be talking completely different at, at cross yeah, purposes here, but it, okay. it but the the intellectual, the ideological, mm-hmm. the the cultural to me always follows from the material. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we're not seeing a redistribution of wealth. We're not at this point. We're seeing wealth concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing an increase in um, the upper, especially the upper 0.1% of the population, but even uh, even the upper uh, 10% and ideologies that go with that. Um, ideologies of, that, that I just want to say ideolo- selfishness or, or blindness yeah. to the suffering of others. Yeah. At, that okay. go with, that go with being in that, in, in, you know, sort of the upper 10% economic yeah. bracket. Yeah. Uh, that has nothing to do with Marxism except insofar as Marxism is fighting those ideologies. Okay. So I, I just, I wonder if there's a way to base the, understanding that other people have it worse and that I can help them on some sort of like uh, internal prompt rather than an external uh, mandate. Like th- that's where I, that's we're way off course right, right now, but sure. It, but that's it, all right. Um, the, the, the part that dings me on what you just said is that solidarity, which is really what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, human solidarity across the board. Uh, at least class solidarity. So, Eventu- so the, the different classes are not s- eventually solid. human solidarity. But, but, um, hmm. but, but as someone who is committed to the cause of the working class, mm-hmm. creating solidarity is not based on. And this is one of the places where I so strongly disagree with so many people on my social media feeds. It's not based on, well, I'm fine or however you put it, but I can, Mm. I want to, you know, I can help these other people. It's my needs for me to advance require solidarity with others. Okay. Yeah. Take it. Take it as a. Let, let's take one of the one of the huh. clear ones that comes up and is really nasty. And I'm probably if this goes out, I'm going to lose about two thousand Twitter followers. So let's. <laughs> you have you have plenty do, to burn. Nah, uh, that's about a third. Anyway, okay. uh, whatever. Um, let's take for example Black Lives Matter or the the uh, racist attacks by police. In various okay. ways. Mm-hmm. To me, the reason that is important, that uh, not necessarily that particular movement, but but the fact that there are racist attacks, uh, there are murders that are fundamentally class-based, mm-hmm. 
is not because, oh, I'm in this, uh, you know, I'm fine. I have nothing to worry about, but I'm going to help these other people. It's because, no, that gun's going to be pointing at me. Hmm. And if we, you know, if we just let this continue, mm-hmm. um, it, it's the, the, the oppression will only spread. We have to get together and fight. Not because I'm this great noble person who's willing to sacrifice myself for others. Yeah. But because it's in my interest not to hmm. have cops shooting people down whenever yeah, they yeah. like it. Yeah. Okay. And that to me is a key difference. Um, how do you how do you anchor that in? It seems like you're trying to articulate a mixture of selfishness and virtue that that's realistic, like a realistic. Uh, merger of those two that that's that's a good way to put it yeah and 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 in a sense that there's there's strains of adam smith like where if i help those around me they help me so i i build capital by allowing capital to be generated around me like it's it's there's the a selfish principle that you can never get away from and insofar as you try to hide that it gets stronger and stronger and comes back in in nastier and nastier ways if you don't like just kind of reckon i my self-interest is paramount to me but that doesn't mean that my my self-interest ends with me it actually extends throughout my community that's a good way to put it and and to me of course as a marxist that's fundamentally based on class that is fundamentally class in the sense of uh those who Hmm. live by selling their labor power by their by their ability to work okay yeah is is that um and yeah, I, I would hmm. say it is exactly the case that self-interest requires class unity. Uh, and so, okay, okay. I apologize again for for getting into this world, but um, to divide human beings into those who sell their labor and then into this other group that sell others labor um it it already it starts that first step of of creating unsolidarity between groups and that agitates that any step it seems to me any step of dividing people into even into classes further exacerbates those divisions the classes exist in reality and and denying that they exist just gives us a warped view of reality. We need to start okay. with what actually is. And what actually is is in order to live, you have to sell something. Yeah. You have to sell the product of your labor. Yeah. You have to sell your labor. Yeah. Or you have to sell the product of someone else's labor. Okay. And that distinction, Okay. those who exist because they own property – that okay. others have to work at have fundamentally different interests at this time okay than those who um than those who have to sell their labor power okay and and that's reality hmm. and trying to trying to say well i think everybody should get together yeah regardless of class is simply to ignore what's really going on 
Hmm. And, and we, we can't change things. The first step of, of changing things is the fight to actually understand them. Yeah. Oh, that's a brilliant quote. Could you tweet that out at some point? I think I have several times. Okay, okay maybe but, I'll but you're, you're welcome to, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, hmm. that, and, and that isn't easy. That's a constant struggle. Yeah. Well, uh, people, uh, human beings are chased by their own ignorance. Like no matter where we are, like it's, it, that's the one monster that's always at the gate. Like we're always forgetting things. So we're always, uh, so myopic. So, so yeah, the project well, of spreading understanding is, is tremendous. Which is huge. why when, when you, uh, when you come across other reactionaries, one thing that they always have in common is disdain for history. What do you mean by what do you mean by reactionary? I, I've I've uh, seen that word it, used a bunch of different ways now. I, I mean in the old traditional sense of extreme politi- extreme right wing. Okay, a reaction so, to the different, reaction to the progressive. Um, it's the, the term progress. reactionary. If if you check it up in like an American Heritage Dictionary, the OED, um, refers to someone who wants to bring hmm. if if we look at the entire course of human history as a very gradual yeah slow fight toward more equality mm-hmm. a reactionary wants less equality wants to uh, take us wants to take us backward okay okay in, in the old traditional use of reactionary okay. okay and one of the things that distinguishes them is they don't want to know history, and if they do, they're going to warp it pretty badly. Hmm. Hmm. And so, so the the tug of war between the far reactionary, let's say, right, and the far utopian left is in a. How would would you define that, or would you even accept that kind of uh, that no. distinction? I don't no. think I'd call. I, I don't think I'd call it utopian. I think it's a it's a matter of a fight for equality. Okay. A uh, political, okay. social, and economic equality, and okay. I just cannot see that as utopian. I, I you know, to okay. me, it's to me, it's um, hmm. how long how long have human beings existed? I mean, you can set the the beginning point any of a number of places, but what do you want to say? 50,000 years, a hundred thousand years. We're infants. We're yeah. babies. Yeah. We haven't even stopped fighting with ourselves yet. <laughs> We're pleasuring ourselves. If we want to go there, we, um, to get to a point where we have, we have actual equality among human beings. Yeah. Is just the launching pad for human culture. That's okay. when we start growing and, and, the the birth pangs of getting there are not pleasant. Yeah. Okay. But I don't see it as at all utopian. You you wrote a tweet a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, that along the lines of you wanted every person who has the creative urge to be able to indulge that creative urge and yes. create whatever they wanted to. Yes. Yes. And and I. I was trying to think of the limit of that. And I I thought, well, that doesn't mean that everybody's required to read what everybody else writes, right? You can't, you can demand the ability to produce all you want, but you cannot demand the, uh, the, I guess the, the privilege of being consumed all you want of being respected. 
So, yes. and I, and I saw that, that people kind of flip those two, um, especially in, in, in the movements that I've been studying is that they, they demand a certain sort of respect, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to respect your ideas. I'll, I'll give you a modicum of respect as a person that wants to create, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to respect the quality of your creation. Right. As you know, one of the, interestingly, one of the, uh, words that I might use with a curl of my lip in talking about someone is dilettante. Okay. And particularly as an artist is this person isn't serious about creating this person. And yet simultaneously, I would love a society in which we could be all be more dilettantes in which we could all I don't want to commit yeah. myself to this art. I want to dabble. I want to, I want to pick up a guitar and play a little bit, and okay. and, and and not become, not have to become a master of it uh, in order mm-hmm. to feel worthwhile. Hmm. So it's it's in this society as currently as it exists, dilettante is kind of a curse word, but I would love a society in which it wasn't, where we could afford to be dilettantes. Yes, exactly. Okay. It, it, this wraps up to what where we really first started about orienting yourself towards maturity and how value is found in a skill. And maybe that's something I picked up with you, but that or or some something back in my Protestant heritage. But that's like my <laughs> core belief is that that skill is what makes life meaningful. Like meaning doesn't exist outside of of being able to manipulate something to the the highest possible degree that you can. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm comfortable with that. And and even in a society with loads and loads of free time, I think people will get into huge amounts of trouble if they don't realize that meaning's found in in creating the best that you can create. And I think that the, a lot of like the dust ups on social media perhaps come down to us misusing the free time that we're being given, and we're not really exploiting our own labor and, and by, and by which I mean really pursuing like the highest that we can. And, and, and that's the, the tension between being able to be a dilettante, but at the same time, do we really want that? We don't, we want a, a society of masters. Don't we want a bunch of Car- Carvaggios around? We want both. And, and I, and I don't think, I really don't think they're mutually exclusive. If people, I mean, I don't remember the quote. There's a, there's a great quote, and I wish I don't remember it. And I don't remember who said it, so I'm feeling really stupid. It might have been a Stephen Hawking's. But it's something to the effect of, I am less interested in the weight of Einstein's brain huh. than yeah. I am in all of the people who could have matched him or been you know, mm-hmm. a, as influential, as brilliant, and as powerful – Except they're working in sugar plantations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a I mean, really good point. Yeah, that that that's uh, I'm, I'm misquoting it badly, but that that's a sort of summary. But that's the point: is is let's create a society where if somebody wants to, ha- somebody isn't prevented from achieving his or her full potential mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by poverty. Yeah. Or, or by external, by, by, by having to work a stupid 40-hour week at a grinding, horrible job. Yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, okay, I, I totally agree with that, and I want to push back a little bit 
insofar as I can see that without the need to create something of value for others, so much potential will be wasted without that writing prompt, without that that urgency that life gives us. And 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 I'm not talking about like like maintaining. I'm not thinking of a reactionary. Let's lift. Uh, let's let's keep people the poor poor. I'm not saying that, but without some sort of need to produce that that prompt to survive it seems like that that drives the very essential innovations that's and, um that, and, that's... And, and 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 one of the problems with the one of the critiques of socialism is that it gets people addicted to not really needing to drive themselves cuz they'll get a check no matter what right and and i'm not saying that themselves so so yeah, and and that sure doesn't match my experience either of myself because huh. I mean when I am feeling financially crunched, that hurts my work. I slow down. Okay. I get nervous. I get scared. Okay. When yeah. I am feeling like oh I'm just you know I'm hmm. I'm I'm at a smooth sailing point. I can do my best work. But not only that, I mean this notion of you must know engineers. Yeah, a few. Do you think if they they'd stop being engineers if they didn't have to to make a living? These people these are people who love creating, fixing, yeah. building, doing scientists. Yeah. Okay. Scientists explore because they have a need to understand. Yeah. They aren't doing it for a paycheck for the most part. I mean some of them are doctors. Most doctors did mm-hmm. not become doctors um to get rich the ones who did are for the most part plastic surgeons yeah um it's i mean again not everyone is the same but overall the people who have contributed most to society weren't doing it for a paycheck they were doing it because they had that drive to do that thing yeah and so what what you are wanting to establish is a society in which the the drag of simply surviving is not uh, getting in the way of that which somebody is prompted to do by an internal need rather than just the need to yes. not starve. Yes, but there is one other factor that I, I feel like if I don't mention, I'm left out something huge. <laughs> Even with that and that how, how good I think that would be and with an end to the oppression so many people live with Mm -hmm. and the poverty, even all that I don't think would push me over into favoring experiences as terrible as, well, I shouldn't say revolution, but Mm -hmm. post-revolutionary periods are always ugly and difficult. Yeah, yeah. If I did not believe that we have no alternative, okay, I do not believe there is any way to fix hmm. uh, climate change or the threat of nuclear war. Just to pick two examples, um, without socializing, completely socializing production and ownership, ma- making uh, making production commonly owned. Because I think the profit motive is simply, it's built in. We're not going to be able to solve those problems. Capitalism requires war. Hmm. 
Um, it cannot it cannot solve climate change, not to mention as uh, income disparity increases. The oppression that goes with that, the political oppression, the -hmm. attacks on uh, speech, the physical assaults on uh, the most oppressed layers Mm -hmm. are only going to get worse until the point where I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a fascistic bastard as president of the United States right now. (laughs) Well, depends on what you mean by fascistic. That that term again is is so plastic in in these days. I have a more I have a fairly precise term, a meat definition of it, which is why I said fascistic, not fascist. Okay, good. He's moving. He's moving toward, in certain ways, moving toward fascism, but not there yet. There's okay. no. There's no. The movement of stormtroopers is hinted at, but not here yet. Hmm. We still have time to fight it. Um, and the mass, the, the mass movement of the completely alienated becoming violent and so on mm-hmm. that goes with an, with that goes with fascism is again, not here yet. Okay. And yet a lot of the pieces of it, the overtones. Yeah. And I think that's dangerous. <laughs> I think you quoted Trotsky the other day on Twitter about revolution. And, Not, and you just mentioned I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but you recognize the the bad part of the revolution. I just wonder if it's possible to have a revolution. I guess the American Revolution worked, but most have had pretty dire consequences. St. Martinique well, did pretty good. I mean, so so far as I know, society has never yet found a way to advance itself without revolution. Hmm. So but not as... like economic revolution or technological revolution. No, I, I mean, I mean, if you have if if you have state power in the hands of a king, mm-hmm. capitalism is unable to develop because okay. the feudal property relations strangle the development of capitalism. So in, you know, mm-hmm. the, the so the French Revolution, the American Revolution to a degree, uh, the um, in even in a way, the American Civil War, uh, the English Civil War, the spate of revolutions, 1848. Paved mm-hmm. the way for the growth of capitalism, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. because I mean, it's certainly better than feudal monarchy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, people see that the society is growing before the revolution and then grows after the revolution. And so they see the revolution as an unnecessary bump on the road. To me, that's like um, saying, well, the fetus was growing and after birth, (laughs) the the kid was, therefore, birth is unnecessary. Birth Birth is a violent and difficult process. But it's a necessary hmm. one. You don't, and you don't think that it's possible for us to to go to to move forward without violence. Then, um, whether there's actual violence depends on the circumstances. Usually, looking at if if you study the history of revolutions, the more prepared the revolutionary class is for violence, the less violence there is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you were gun um, gun over owner then uh actually at this moment i do own a firearm but it's a <laughs> toy 
it's a it's a single action uh you know uh thing but no i don't i i don't think the answer is owning guns oh okay um, at the point when at, hmm. at the point of a revolutionary struggle the military will either come over to to the insurgents or you're dead hmm. i mean the, the 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 key moment in any revolutionary struggle is whether you win over the military mm-hmm. and the opportunity is always there because the military, I mean, this is part of the same society, right? <laughs> all, all the contradictions and difficulties and struggles that are leading the masses toward revolution are also affecting the army. So yeah. how can they be immune? Um, but that doesn't mean they will. Hmm. It just, in, in a certain respect, it seems to me that society has advanced so much and is so complex that a revolution, it, we're not prepared for a revolution. We can't live five days without lights, you know, like we would have to really sacrifice infrastructure in I order. See, I don't, I really don't see why. I mean, the Bolshevik revolution in October of 1917 cost not only very few lives, but pretty much didn't disrupt anything the the shops were open the next day the streetcars kept running um the you you talk about the bolshevik revolution then i just think of the gulag and then what happened to the the farm workers the cossacks or the cossacks uh like you mean you mean the kulaks the kulaks thank you I'll tell you. I mean, there there's many many people I have I have a great deal of sympathy with in the uh, aftermath of the Russian Revolution and particularly yeah. the rise of Stalinism. Yeah, the, the kulaks aren't one. Fuck the kulaks. Huh. Well, I mean, but, but that's the doing, thing. Like, what... they were hoarding food, creating famine to huh. get a better price. Huh. I mean, fuck them. Okay. Well, okay, but in the power vacuum, how do you prevent a Stalin from coming in and taking advantage of everything? Uh, that's a incredibly complex question. I've <laughs> I've I've dealt with that to some extent in a whole series of blog posts based uh, I was on thinking uh, of the Vlad novel if that happened uh, uh, of reading uh reading Trotsky's Revolution Betrayed, and I sort of went through it in a huh. whole series. Um, but. I can give you I can give you the soundbite answer, but it's not very satisfying. Hmm. It's Probably. that um, a working class strong enough to exercise its dictatorship over society will allow no dictatorship over it. In hmm. Russia, they were not strong enough. The working class was not strong enough, particularly after coming out of World War One and the the wars of intervention from 1918 to 1922. Mm-hmm. pretty much shattered them, including the most conscious, self-sacrificing, uh, advanced workers were the ones in the front line. Mm-hmm. And the, they were the ones who were uh, decimated. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a very, you know, it was very difficult. And the big thing that happened was the betrayal of the revolutions in Germany, uh, Belgium, uh, England, the English general strike. France. Uh, it was very reasonable. I mean, in Germany in 1918, the working class actually took power, and their leaders handed it back. Hmm. Oh, um, and if that Are had you... not happened, we'd be living in a drastically different world right now. Do you think that it's inevitable? That do you think tyranny 
is avoidable then? I guess that's the question. How do you avoid tyranny? Uh, tyranny comes up. Tyranny. When every ruling class wants to run its society as cheaply as possible, mm-hmm. tyranny is expensive. When they feel, when the ruling class feels threatened, like now, I mean, what's happening, what Trump is doing and the attacks on press freedom, on on, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, Assange, plus the overt repression, the police militarization, that's a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. They're scared because it's much cheaper for them not to do that. Yeah. So tyranny is a function of fear of the ruling class. So the fear I mean, from the ruling class uh, the, of them being afraid that yeah, they okay. that they yeah. they need this in order to secure their power. Yeah. Do you do you see like the possibility of a ruling class being eradicated? Isn't there yes. always going to be a ruling class? No, is, I don't should that be is. automated? Like, should we have a computer do it? Or? No, I don't think you need a ruling class. I mean, I think you need. We can destroy social classes entirely. Huh. Um, the first step is to make the majority—that is, the working class—the ruling class. But that, to me, is a temporary situation, hmm. at leading to a classless society. I mean, if everybody owns everything in common, then classes. By the uh, by, the Marxist definition of the term, no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't have classes, you don't have a ruling class, right? Yeah, you have, you have a democratic control of the state to the extent you even need a state, which I think would get smaller and smaller. Hmm. Has this happened yet somewhere no. in the world? No. So it's unfalsifiable, <laughs> like. Or like well, the opposite you know, of unfalsifiable. Like, why hasn't it worked? Yet? Well, the um, it well, it's, it's the betrayal of the of the German Revolution by the Social Democrats, mm-hmm. of the English General Strike by the Labor Party. Um, I, I just I, I, Labor, it, I'm skeptical that it will it will never not be betrayed. Like, oh, like yeah, the, you make the ruling class, the working class, a ruling class, a minority of the working class will then become the the ruling class. Yeah, like I it think, will just I, didn't didn't King Charles II say that about capitalism right after the Restoration? It where has capitalism ever worked? I think he said that. <laughs> say that. <laughs> you can't you can't show me a single place where capitalism has worked. He said, huh? Probably. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. It requires work. It's not an easy thing. What it requires yeah. well, and maintenance. What not it just, requires yeah. is is above all is consciousness. Is socialist consciousness spread as hmm. widely as possible? Okay. I actually mean, I actually mean genuine socialist consciousness, not capitalism that isn't quite as mean. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Can I? I need to go because I have to uh, go. Uh, work on dinner but um one more impossible question all right can you summarize what you mean by socialist consciousness what is it about being conscious that makes you that would allow this okay to work it is it, um 
an awareness that our goal is full social, economic, and political equality and a willingness to work for that goal. Spreading that as widely as possible. And by economic equality, I mean common ownership of production. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, um, an end of, of political oppression. Yeah. And, and you know, none of this stuff is easy. I'm not saying this is a snap. Okay. Yeah. But the more widely... I mean, this isn't a this isn't ridiculous. Look at the amount of socialist consciousness there was in the United States during the period of the rise of the CIO in the 30s, the mm -hmm. late 20s, okay. all the yeah. all the way through the beginning of World War II. How many millions identified themselves as socialists or communists and knew what they were talking about? Mm -hmm. And you know. Yeah, there again, we have the betrayal by the Stalinists. Hmm. It's a difficult fight. We, uh, The Trotskyists were fighting it at that time and just were not strong enough, had not, did not have enough time to build a strong enough movement. But, I mean, you can see the seeds of it. I live in a great city. Minneapolis is a wonderful city. Highest percentage of parkland, uh, I believe in the world by a lot. Yeah. It's the and, frozen Portland. And <laughs> it got that way because of the Minneapolis general driver's strike led by Trotskyists hmm. in okay. which the, the citizens Alliance, <laughs> uh, the anti-union citizens Alliance was broken. The, the fascist silver shirts were crushed. Hmm. Um, and it produced, you know, a really wonderful little it i'm talking about little hints that this can happen okay that yeah this kind yeah. of consciousness can spread yeah but it, it requires patiently explaining it isn't like uh one of those things where it's all emotion based and you've got to you know and all you need to do is rah rah this requires hmm. treating people as intelligent beings that's hard for all of and us it, yeah and acting like intelligent but, beings to patiently explaining it can be done yeah but it Do, isn't easy when you say like collective ownership of uh, of labor you don't mean like that everybody's name is on your book though right i mean your books are your books like that's your labor if if and and by extension an entrepreneur somebody who owns and runs a small business it's their name it's their work it's their okay it's their it's, it's, it's uh, you yeah, I'm not talking about a guy who's sitting in his shop making um, making really cool um, cabinets because that's his passion, okay? Yeah. I'm talking about the Ford plant. Okay. I mean, legally, there is no difference under the law at the moment between um, Walmart and yeah. your house, yeah. okay? That's legally. Anyone who doesn't see a difference between those two things is an idiot. <laughs> okay? The, mm -hmm. That Walmart and that or that Ford plant are not only property, they are also how millions of people mm -hmm. put food in their mouths. Yeah. 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 
Okay, socializing mm-hmm. those things is, in my mm-hmm. opinion, necessary. That doesn't mean I'm gonna. I, I, I'm an, some guy who's sitting in a in a shop with with some cool tools making great things. Somebody's gonna tell them, "No, you can't do that." I mean, that's yeah. just stupid. Hmm. I mean, the, the idea is to encourage that, to encourage people to follow their passions, yeah, and create okay. what they want, yeah, and what and what moves them. Because that's going to help everybody, right? Yeah, I mean, well, more... unless you're Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Stalin, I should probably let you get back to cooking. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Dude. I hope you're going to edit this down to something that doesn't suck. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> If it sucks, it's my fault. And it, 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 no, it's so great this to meet been, you. This has been really fun. Are you coming? Are you doing any tours, or is there a, a new book coming out uh, by you soon that we can plug now? Um, let's see. The next book of mine to come out is Magis- the Baron of Magister Valley. That's uh, like a year from now. Okay. <coughs> I've just released the the audio book of Terrain in Hell and Agyar. Oh. I I do the reading on Agyar. A guy named Jiraiya Adams read uh, Terrain in Hell, so those are new. Okay. Um, are, are they on Audible? Can I pl- uh, put the put the yes, links? Can, yes. Okay. Can I give you send you a link? Yeah, send me the links. We'll put them down right. in the description. I wish you had an honorific. I keep keep on wanting to call you professor or doctor <laughs> or something. <laughs> You're just Mister. You're Mister no, Bruce. It's, it's dude. <laughs> hey, dude. It's hey you. Hey yo. Get back to writing. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Thank you. It was delightful. And I will see you online. You too. Yeah. Yeah. See you online. Ciao. All right.